Good morning, church, and Happy New Year. Um, I don't know about you, but I am thankful that God's mercies are new every morning and they're new every year. Amen? I'm I'm excited to be here. Uh, You know, my students tell me that I'm a different professor at 9 a.m. than I am in my 11 a.m. classes. Why? Because of my circulating caffeine levels. Um, So I've learned over my 12 years of teaching to calibrate my morning consumption. Uh, I haven't done that yet for preaching. Uh, So buckle up and bear with me. All I know is Lori keeps those things stocked out there, and I've been enjoying the free coffee since 7.30 this morning. So, um, you know, as Jason was up here just a second ago, uh, I kind of chuckled to myself because Jason and I were chatting before service, and he said, um, he he, he made mention of how he loves to use football references, and the Holy Spirit gave me a football reference as I was sitting there. I felt like, okay, this is gonna go well. Um, The idea that popped into my head is that I feel a little bit this morning like the third string quarterback that they call in just to crash a one yard first down. And then they put him right back on the bench. So uh, what I wanna tell you is that as we head into playoff time, our starting quarterback is about to come off the IR. So I'm excited. I'm excited um, to have Jason back in the pulpit next week and to lead us into the year ahead. Um, And in in a very serious way, friends, I am deeply thankful to the Lord for his answered prayer for Jason's surgery. Uh, If you've been part of this community, you know Jason has had a complex year or two medically. And God was kind and generous for this surgery to go smoothly and go well. So I just want to give him honor and praise the Lord for his answered prayer in that. Um, Well, today I am honored uh, to be here on behalf of our elder team. Um, The eight of us, Adam, John, Ron, Sam, Vaughn, Ryan, Rick, myself, uh, we are deeply honored to serve this body and we're committed over the coming months uh, to continue to work and find new ways to connect with you and to serve this body. Uh, to make much of Jesus and to love our community. I'm thrilled today specifically to help launch this exciting year that Jason talked about. We're fixing our eyes squarely on the person of Jesus and the hope that he brings. And you know, one of the, the gifts that we have as followers of Jesus is that our sacred celebration of Christmas is not just a single moment on the calendar where we check it off and then it's done. It's not that. It's the beginning every year of a reminder that we are part of a grand story of God's faithfulness that started in the manger and continues forever. It's also a story that's, that's personal to each of us. We each get invited to be part of God's story and to walk with him in that. Well, this Christmas, uh, Andre and I were honored to receive a letter from some friends here at Community Church, Dwight and Lois Baker. Some of you know Dwight and Lois. I want to tell you just real quickly a little bit about Dwight. Uh, He retired as Associate Director of the Overseas Ministries Study Center in Connecticut in 2011. He was the Associate Editor, I have a picture that will be up in just a minute, of the International Bulletin of Mission Research, and he co-edited a number of books. I want to share with you a couple of the titles, and I'll tell you why in a second. One of them was called Serving Jesus with Integrity, Ethics and Accountability in Mission. The other one called People Disrupted, Doing Mission Responsibly Among Refugees and Migrants. The reason I share that, that little brief 
bio of Dwight and Lois is because we have this diverse group of Christ followers who are using their gift to pursue the kingdom in unique ways. Um, And one of the things I love about Community Church as a multi-generational community is that we can honor the wisdom of our elders, those who have gone ahead of us in life. And so um, in their Christmas letter, Dwight wrote eloquently about the incarnation of Christ, about the birth of Christ. So as I was preparing this morning to bridge from Christmas over the last week or two to this new year, um, I asked Dwight, I said, can I share what you wrote um, to help frame my sermon today? And he, he said he'd be glad to. So listen, listen to these words. In taking on human flesh in the baby Jesus, God became entwined within human history in an entirely new way. By the incarnation, God declared that henceforward God's support lay irrevocably on the side of restoration and renewal of both the human heart and the entirety of creation. If God so dignified material creation, what ought the attitude and actions of those who call themselves followers of Jesus the Christ be toward material creation and all of life on earth? So today, we move from the worship of that incarnate baby Jesus to a year of earnest and honest study of the fullness of Jesus. And that's my, that's my privilege this morning is to do that. Specifically, as Jason said, over the next six weeks, we'll explore specific encounters between Jesus and unique characters in the Bible, many of which I would argue are a lot like me, a lot like you, and we can learn a lot from them. We'll be asking of God's word, Jesus, what, what do you want of us? How would you have us live in light of your birth, in light of your death, in light of your resurrection, in light of the way you cared for others around you? How would you have us live, Lord? That's what we're going to be asking. And today, in particular, we dive into a kind of a unique individual that maybe not all of us are familiar with. It's Nathaniel from John chapter 1. So I'd invite you right now, if you would, turn with me uh, in the Bible in front of you, perhaps on your device, to John chapter 1. We'll start in verse 43. Follow along with me if you want. This scene takes place at an important moment in Jesus' early ministry where he's gathering disciples around him that would form his core team. Here's what we read. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. 
Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, in this passage, there are some obvious things that we can learn about Jesus, some straightforward things, and we'll look at those together. And then there's some subtle, not so obvious things that can teach us a whole lot about the story of God and about Jesus. And so over the next 20 minutes or so, Together, I'd like to just unpack these verses and look at the fullness of God's word to try to understand something new and fresh about Jesus. You ready? Let's do that together. Um, And we'll do it um, kind of in sequential order. Let's first take a look at Jesus' first words in his interaction in verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite. That's kind of a strange way to greet someone a little bit. Let's pause there because this reference sets up the most important thing in this entire passage. Say that again. This reference saying, here truly is an Israelite. It sets up the most important thing in this entire passage. It's important to know that this this overt reference to Nathaniel being an Israelite, it's more than just an ethnic identifier. He's not just calling out an ethnic identifier. Rather, Jesus is subtly framing the entire conversation that's about to happen. He's trying to get Nathaniel's attention and the other listeners their attention. An Israelite, right? He's saying there truly is an Israelite. Another, another translation says there's an Israelite indeed. As we know, that, that simply means someone who f- is from the nation of Israel, a member of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Israel. But where does the name Israel come from? Think about that for a second. Do you know that? Where does the nation, where does the name Israel come from? Well, the people of Israel are those descendants of a person who was given the name Israel. Who was that? It's it's Jacob. We read in Genesis 32, Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, he was given the name Israel, which means one who wrestles with God, right? And so, Jesus here, when he addresses Nathanael, he's alerting him to that historical context which all of these Jewish men and women around would have known. These men, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, they were the ones to whom God offered his promise, the covenant, the promise of provision, protection, and blessing. What was the blessing that God promised to these men? That is where we're going this morning. What was the blessing that was promised to these forefathers? More on that in just a minute. So let's read on. After he says, there is an Israelite, what does Jesus say next? He says, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Or in other translations, guile. Some of you may recall that translation. That's not a phrase that I hear often. I don't, do you use the word guile very often? I don't. Um, in fact, on campus, like I, I might hear things like, there's a legend, there's a stud, there's a baller, there's a queen, a boss, a diva. I've never, ever heard someone say, there's a true Hoosier in whom there is no guile. Uh, now, I might, I might start it. Like, first day of class, student walks in, there's a scholar in whom there's no guile. Uh, I feel like that might elevate my professorial status uh, and alienate me from the students. Um, 
So what does guile mean? It's an interesting word, and it actually has massive significance for what Jesus is about to tell Nathaniel. The original Greek word is dolos, which means deceit or craftiness. In fact, that, that NIV translation uses that word deceit. It also means craftiness. So why is Jesus pointing out this particular characteristic? Why is he pointing out this characteristic, there is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit? Well, just a moment ago, I mentioned Jacob, one of the forefathers of the nation of Israel. Deceit was, in fact, a trait that Jacob was infamous for. He was known throughout the entire people of Israel for his history of deceit. Okay? And so it is not random that Jesus is using this descriptor here. Most notably in Jacob's history, he was known for that deceit because he deceptively and craftily stole the birthright from his older brother Esau. Do you remember that story? That's how he became heir to God's promise that I mentioned a moment ago. And that's really important as we read on. So twice now, in the first verse of this passage, Jesus has made a reference that would have had enormous significance to the Jewish listeners that were standing around. This reference to the word guile or deceit, the word dolos, it had another significance to Jesus. A simple word study on that term dolos will reveal to you a really important usage in Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4. Listen to this this context that was very important to Jesus. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. The word there was dolos. They used craftiness and deceit to secretly capture and kill Jesus, the enemy of their power. And so at the moment that Jesus is speaking here to Nathanael, he was and would be well acquainted with deceit. And I wonder if that wasn't why Jesus sought out friends like Nathanael. Friends that were real, friends that were down to earth, friends that were honest. So here's a question for you. Think with me for a second. See if someone comes to your mind. Do you have any friends in your life who maybe are a little rough around the edges, but who you cannot live without because they are the ones who tell you like it is? You have any friends like that? I do. I'm just now figuring out why, I'm, why I love them so much in my 40s, because I need people around me who tell me like it is. Nathaniel may very well have been that kind of person to Jesus. And we, we, in fact, that's more than speculation on my part, because when we look back at verse 45 and 46, we see this kind of characteristic in Nathaniel's words. When Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, what does Nathaniel say? He says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And so when we hear this, we're like, who is this guy? Like, who's this punk? Questioning the Son of God, questioning his heritage. Seems like a jerk. Like the, his first words, that someone invites you to come meet the Son of God? And your word's like, where's he from? Um, the reality is, I think, the more I meditate on this passage, Nathaniel was just blunt. He was just honest. He was desperately waiting for the Messiah. We have to remember, friends, that generations of these Hebrews had been waiting 
for the Messiah to come and redeem their people. And so when, when your friend says to you that they think they might have found the Messiah, uh, he just voices his raw concern. Are you sure? You sure that's the one, the king? What we see here, and we can draw some parallels perhaps to some of the people in our own lives, what we see here is his skepticism. But here's what I also see when I read this text. I also see someone who is desperately seeking the Messiah. And I suspect, friends, that if we think about the people around us, our family members, our friends, our neighbors, many of them fit that exact same mold. They are skeptical, they are wary of the Messiah, but they are earnestly and desperately seeking him. Do you agree with that? They have their skepticisms, but they also want to know him. They want to know the truth, the maker. And my encouragement to you and to my own heart today as we look at this encounter with Jesus is that the way we respond to those friends' comments can either move them closer to Jesus or farther away from Jesus. So, so to that end, let's look at how Jesus responded to Nathaniel's snarky skepticism. And to do that, let's first pay attention to what Jesus did not do. He hears that kind of snarky insult about his heritage. What Jesus didn't do is he, he could have, here's what Jesus could have done. He could have crushed him for his lack of reverence. You understand that? This is part of the triune God of the universe, and someone just insulted the heritage that God authored. So Jesus could have crushed him for his lack of reverence. Jesus, in his ultimate knowledge, he could have mocked Nathaniel for his inferior intellect. Like some of us, when we feel insulted, he, he could have poked at one of Nathaniel's insecurities. Usually people that make those kind of insults have their own weaknesses and their own insecurities. Jesus could have exploited that. Instead, Jesus engaged him with both grace and truth. What I see in the way Jesus responded is someone who is pursuing a connection in love. I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that in a second. Practically speaking, what did Jesus do? He started by honoring Nathaniel. He honored him through the simple statement, here's truly as an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. He gave him honor. And then what did Jesus do next? And here's where we start to get to the real heart of this encounter. Well, Jesus did what only he can do, but we can model. Jesus demonstrated his ability to see and know our innermost beings. He demonstrated his ability to see and know his innermost beings. And friends, if we aim in 2022 to reach the 100,000 in our community that don't have a home to follow Jesus, we must engage them in ways like Jesus that let them know that they are seen and that they are known by us and by Jesus. That's not easy, but it's what we must do. So when Nathaniel asked, how do you know me? Jesus answered, again, no, no, you hear the skepticism? How do you know me? You could say that with a couple different tones, but he was skeptical once again. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree. 
before Philip called you. So what's going on here? When Jesus says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you, did, did Jesus literally see him? Like he just happened to be, he was like walking, and, oh, Nathaniel under the fig tree. That's po- it's possible. Other people have asked, did Jesus somehow use these like super optical, supernatural, he like saw two miles, and like, there's a Winnie the Pooh episode like that. Um, those are both plausible. Those are plausible, but it's not probably what's going on here. Biblical scholars believe that this seemingly obscure reference to a fig tree indicates Philip's private home, his own garden. Let me give you a little bit of evidence to that. These verses, I think, will be on the screen behind me. 1 Kings 4.25 says this, During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. Interesting. Micah 4.4 similarly says, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid for the Lord Almighty has spoken. So this reference to under their own fig tree has cultural meaning to them. Uh, It's a cultural reference. I was thinking, you know, I like to, when I'm studying God's word, I like to think about what are the cultural terms that make immediate and obvious sense to us, but that would be perhaps a little puzzling 2,000 years from now. And so I thought of one, one jumped to my mind. If I, if I turn to Matt and I say, Matt, um, I want to encourage you to cultivate hospitality in your man cave that honors God. Everyone, most of us, 99% of us know exactly what I mean when I say your man cave. Readers 2,000 years from now would say, did every man in Greenwood have a cave? <laughs> yep, it was geologically abstract. It's very weird. Uh, am I right in that? I'm tr- there are cultural references that make obvious sense to us and would be confusing because of their literalism to other people. Um, trying to be equitable among the genders, I thought about maybe like a she shed my wife would love a she shed. We don't have one yet. <laughs> yeah, what? Some of you are like, what is he talking about? Google it, she shed. It's, it's a retreat for mamas that need time away from. Um, but in, in all seriousness, this reference to under the fig tree had immediate significance to Nathaniel. What Jesus seems to be referring to, his personal home, is a space where, here's the important part, where many of us have had our most vulnerable and honest times with God. It's the space, it's our private personal space where we've had some of the most vulnerable and honest conversations with God. Nathaniel's response that comes in just a moment seems to indicate that Jesus had seen and known an inner thought in Nathaniel that had great significance. And so I wonder, I'd ask you this morning, Are there any marked moments in your life where you've laid bare your heart and your mind to the Lord? Maybe even wrestled with him. Are there any moments, any times in your your past where you've done that with the Lord? And then secondly, I would ask you, has God ever demonstrated to you his ability to see and hear your heart in those moments? Have you ever been just brutally honest and open with God and then, and then as you've conversed with him and the Holy Spirit, he, he 
makes it known to you that those are not empty thoughts, that he's present with you in those conversations, that he sees and cares. And I'm not talking about like a simple request on your wish list being granted. I'm talking about a deep, nuanced, raw quality of your life, your lived experience, that God demonstrates his ability to see and know and understand. As I reflected on that question, I thought about distinct moments in my own life where I've poured my heart out to God. I suspect there's some for you as well. And if Jesus said to me something like, Ben, I saw you on that hike. I saw you that early morning on the porch swing. I saw you that evening in the chair by the fire. I saw you that night you spent in the hospital, that time you ran in the mountains. Where would it be for you? What would be that moment, that place where if Jesus said, friend, I saw you there, where you might respond and react just like Nathaniel did. And how did, how did Nathaniel respond? He declared, he went from snarky skeptic to worshipful disciple. He said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In that moment, he believed, he submitted, he worshiped. At that moment, he became a disciple of Jesus, a follower. And we read on. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Jesus here is inviting him on a grand adventure. That's what he's doing as he starts his ministry. What was, what was Nathaniel's fate on that adventure? Friends, scholars believe Nathaniel was among the 11 disciples that were ultimately martyred. So, what, was, what exactly was Jesus promising Nathaniel? What exactly is he promising us in this encounter? That's the most important part of this whole encounter. In the final verse, we read this, and here's the, the culmination of this encounter. Jesus added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And this is one of the more obscure elements of this passage. As we unpack it, though, there's an amazing truth this picture of angels ascending and descending refers to the angels that were ascending and descending the ladder in Jacob's dream in Genesis 28. The same Jacob I mentioned just a few minutes ago, the deceiver, the one to whom God extended his promise in spite of his deception. So if we turn to that text, we read a story uh, where in this particular passage where Jacob is fleeing the anger of his older brother Esau that he just deceived. And as you may recall, Jacob, with the help of his mother, had deceived Isaac to steal that blessing that was otherwise reserved for Esau as the eldest brother. So he's headed to Haram to escape his brother's vengeance. And we read this, Jacob left Beersheba and set out to Haran, where he reached a certain place. He stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring." 
I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So what do we make of this, this interesting story of Jacob's ladder or stairway with angels ascending and descending? It's a strange reference, is it not? Well, Jacob was likely aware of the ziggurat towers that were built in Mesopotamia around this time. There may be an image of an example of one in modern-day Iraq behind me. These towers had these staircases that went way up to the top of these towers, and there was a temple at the bottom and a shrine at the top. And archaeologists suggest that those stairs were so small and so hot, so high that they were built only for the gods to ascend and descend among these polytheistic worshipers. We read in Genesis 11 that the builders of the Tower of Babel or Babel intended to build that tower to do what? To reach up to God. But as we know, they didn't succeed in that effort. Why didn't they succeed? They didn't succeed because it was sinful man, us, trying to reach up to God rather than receiving God. It was, it was man's own merit trying to reach God. And the stairway that we read about in Jacob's dream was, in fact, God's answer to man's Tower of Babel. That's kind of a strange statement. Let me say it again. The stairway tower of Jacob's dream was God's answer to man's Tower of Babel. The stairway of Jacob's dream was God's answer to Jacob's deceitful efforts to seize God's blessing through his craftiness, through his dolos, his deceit. And unlike our own Towers of Babel, where we try to reach God through our own craftiness, the top of Jacob's ladder did reach to heaven. Why? Because God was the builder, the initiator. Edmund Clowney writes this, true religion does not come from man's quest, but from God's intervention. We read on in in the New Testament in Romans 9, verse 10 through 13, Paul reminds us that God actually chose Jacob, not Esau, even before the twins were born passage says not only that but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by her father Isaac yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand not by works but by him who calls she was told the older will serve the younger just as it is written Jacob I love but Esau I hated why did why did God do this why did he write this through Paul so that Jacob had no reason to boast so that God would be the sole recipient of glory. And as Jacob in this story in Genesis is fleeing from the consequences of his deceit, God repeated the blessing to him. He identified himself as Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of the promise. He repeated the terms of the promise, the land, the line of descent, the blessing for all the families of the earth. Above all, the Lord pledged his own presence to Jacob. We read in verse 15 where where God said, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. And when Jacob awoke from that dream, he didn't survey the land that had just been promised to him. 
He didn't start thinking about the bride that would be his according to that promise. Instead, he whispered, surely the Lord is in this place. He had learned in that moment that there's something greater than earthly inheritance, something greater than earthly circumstances. And here, friends, this is where the story of Jacob in Genesis, the story of Nathaniel here in John comes to land in our own hearts, in our own lives. The promise that Yahweh was mercifully extending to Jacob, the promise that Jesus was extending to Nathaniel, is an invitation to be with God, to join the kingdom of God and be present with him. Here's the the climax of this encounter that Jesus has with Nathaniel. The stairway with the angels ascending and descending was just a picture in Jacob's dream But what that dream promised became a reality in Christ's incarnation. God came down in the person of his son to dwell on earth. It's Jesus who is the link between earth and heaven. He is the true Bethel, the house of God. He is our Emmanuel at Christmas, God with us. And that blessing has been brought to us through Jesus Christ, who's present with us by means of the Spirit. And as the Lord said to Jacob in that passage in Genesis, I will never leave you. The Lord also says, Jesus also says to his disciples and to us in Matthew, I am with you always to the very end of the age. The greatest promise given to Jacob, to Nathaniel, to us is what? It's that God is with us. Edmund Clowney writes, and I'll I'll wrap up with this quote. It is Jesus who has ascended the stairway to heaven. He can ascend because he has first come down. He can lead us up that stairway because he was lifted up on the cross. Through the cross, Jesus is the way to heaven. He is the full and final revelation of the presence of God. We come to the Father, friends, through him. And Jesus was extending that invitation to Nathaniel, and he extends that invitation to us. So what do we do? What do we do with that? Well, we, we worship. That's what we first do. And friends, my invitation to you today, this week, this year ahead, is that you would come and see the beauty of Jesus. That you would see the wonder of God's story that's been written and woven throughout all of history, throughout all of Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. When Nathanael asked, what good can come from Nazareth? I suspect, friends, many of our neighbors, many of you perhaps, are asking the same question. What good can come from Nazareth? What good can come from the Word of God? What good can come from the church? And we today, the staff, the elders, the the teachers in this church, we would extend an invitation to you in 2022. Friend, come and see. Come and see. If you're still not sure about Jesus, you're still wary like Nathaniel was, come and see. If your heart is frail and weathered and your faith is weak, come and see. If you are rooted in Jesus, but you long to drink more deeply from the well, come and see. Join us. We have some great opportunities here on Sunday mornings in our worship time and our learning. We have some great opportunities through workshops and classes, and we'd love to have you. 
we would love to have you. So whatever the next step is in knowing Jesus more in 2022, here's my challenge to you today from Nathaniel's encounter, that you would take a step, just like Nathaniel, step in, lean in, pursue Jesus, pursue him in honesty and in sincerity, but take that next step of knowing Jesus more. Will you pray with me this morning as we close? Father, thanks for stories in your word that enliven our hearts, that enrich our understanding of who Jesus is. You are worthy of everything that we are. You're worthy of our study, of our worship. So we just ask, Father, that you would take um, this little encounter with Nathaniel and you would use it to, um, to stir our hearts, that we would worship for the invitation that has extended from creation to Jacob to Nathaniel to now to come and see, to walk with you, to receive the gift of the Son of Man who ascends and descends because of his sacrifice on the cross and makes a way for us to walk with you and to approach the Father. We love you, Father, and we thank you uh, for this time and your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.